0: Before this episode of the Final Word podcast, a quick thank you to the Final Word sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing. Check them out on Instagram and Facebook at Brick Lane Brewing. Brick Lane is based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia, the world's sporting capital. Great city, great beer. You can check out Brick Lane's One Love Pale Ale, winner of the 2021 gold medal at the Australian International Beer Awards. One Love Pale Ale, described as a soft-bodied pale ale bursting with bright characters and a cleansing bitterness. It's kind of like the final word. Bright characters, and a cleansing bitterness. I may have gone too far with that. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of The Final Word, and thank you for listening to Jeff and Adam twice a week now. Twice a week. The weekly episode and story time. Have you noticed the new story time artwork yet? It looks fantastic. Find everything Final Word related at finalwordcricket.com. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and The Final Word. I had to go.
1: It is the final word story time, Adam Cohens and Jeff Lemon. It's something of the morning after the night before here in London. We said on the weekly show when we were recording it yesterday that we didn't know whether England would progress through to the Euros final, but after a Absorbing, tense, stressful. Mm-hmm. Uh, One hundred and twenty minutes. They did exactly that last night. Yep. And as I said on the weekly show, it's impossible not to get completely wrapped up in all of this over here at the moment. I wasn't here at the pointy end of the twenty eighteen World Cup campaign. I was in Zimbabwe and then doing that tri series and came home via the Seychelles, where there was limited interest in, in what was going on. But I tell you what, it was loose in London last night, and it will be all the way through until
0: Sunday night. So uh, I suppose we're all kind of riding that wave at the moment. It's um, it's quite funny being in Australia. Where there's very little attention being paid to it at all, and versus seeing online what's happening with everybody who I know over your side of the world, it's it's it, it's like a national equivalent of being St Kilda or something, like the the, the team that's <laughs> always been. A bit, sad, close too. a bit sad, a bit well, sad, a bit they're, they're, shit, they're, even when they've been good. Like, they've had the points when they're good and they should have won some stuff, but they didn't and it's all still a bit sad and a bit shit.
1: It's funny you say that because, I mean, you know, uh, I suppose uh, internet culture, it's mm. always comparing one team to another and historically I remember t- there used to be that comparison between Liverpool and Hawthorne, dominant in the 80s and sort of the mm-hmm. arse fell out thereafter before coming good. St Kilda and England's bang on, really, considering they won their only trophy in 1966. Mm-hmm. The same with St Kilda. Oh the yeah, other year they won so the flag. So you've done pretty well there in terms of underachieving and sort of uh, calamitous off-field stuff and so on. But yeah, it's it's kind of a weird one for me to be in because yeah, I mean I'm Australian and proudly Australian, but equally I feel quite British by virtue of my. My family and, and now my partner And my daughter I mean my daughter Will mm. suffer through Watching England in, in major tournaments Through her life I'm sure uh, yeah. So I do I, yeah, So it's a, little, it's a little bit Different to how it Might have been Let's say in, yeah, I don't know I've always kind of Had an interest In the England football team mm. But yeah if, if not for the fact That I have these Sort of deep links And roots mm. to this country it may not be quite as Strong at the moment But yeah I'm, I'm feeling it You're, I'm feeling the love so. And your
0: daughter's Your daughter's going to be A total posho Like this is This is unavoidable Because she's going to be English So i like, <laughs> I've got yes I've got nephews who are Canadian, as in, you know, my sister is Australian but they live there. And it doesn't matter how Australian she is. You know, she's held the Australian accent. She doesn't she hasn't let it slip. There's still tomatoes. There's no tomatoes going around in that house. <laughs> but all three of them, they're all like, hey man, I'm Canadian ass," And it's like, you won't be able to avoid it. And there's also a thing with English kids. It's like, even if their parents' accent isn't super posh, the kids' accents are always posh. They're always like, daddy, can we visit the cathedral? You know? And, and <laughs> like, that's what Winnie's going to be like. You're going to have to process that. That's that's, that's yeah, all we, ahead of
1: you. We've, we've already had to start reconciling it a little bit because you can even hear it now. Mm. I mean, in the 30 or 40 or 50 words that she's got she does have an English accent already Uh, you know you can only just detect it but if you're listening Mm. for it so what I might do on Sunday night is keep her up till about 5 past 8 before putting her to bed and take a photo of her watching in front of the television, because it might be something that she treasures when she's a, inevitably a sports nut later in life. I, Rach, I sometimes say this to Rach, and she's like, she doesn't necessarily need to be like you in this respect. Mm. I'm like, if she didn't care about sport, that would be perfectly fine with me. Mm. But what are the odds of having me as your dad and mm. not ending up being consumed by sport? Like it, I don't see it happening unless she thoroughly rebels against yep. me. And this, this part of my life. But then she'll come back around.
0: If she rebels against you, it'll be for like, you know, 10 years between sort of 12 and 22 or something. But then yes. she'll loop back later. Like she won't be able to help it. <laughs> you, you can't, yeah. you know, you, you, you can't deny your, your heritage in those ways.
1: That's right. You can't uh, you can't deny demographics and nor can you deny your bloodline. Or just so, constant uh, exposure to something for years and years. Yeah, and years. yeah. And in a positive way too. Like I'm not planning on sort of forcing it mm. down their throat and and making football and cricket their yeah. only. Or I say football in the general sense AFL or. Not AFL, Australian rules football, the AFL mm. being the competition, not not the sport. But yeah, anyway, it's all, it's all part of the, the, the thoughts that have been swirling around my mind over the last couple of days. Also, uh, what's been swirling mm-hmm. around my mind the last couple of days, Jeff, is that we get to record another one of these Storytime episodes, e- which means that we get to pace through a bunch of numbers mm-hmm. that relate to the game that we call... Mm. Nerd Pledge,
0: well, the game we call cricket as well. There's the game of cricket. There's also the game of nerd. Pledge. Sorry, the great game of cricket. Great game of the cricket. Great, the great game of nerd. Great, cr- great game of cricket. Uh, I'm just. It is a privilege and an honour to be involved with the great game of Nerd Pledge. If if <laughs> if I was asked to captain the Australian Nerd Pledge team again, I, I would. If I were asked by the right person, I would consider my answer. <laughs> That's all I'm saying at this point, Adam. Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge is the game that we play with people who listen to the show. The reverse quiz. They quiz us. You can do it too if you want. They send us numbers. They send us numbers by sending uh, financial donations, contributions to the show. They do this on Patreon. It's a thing where you can send those... To people who you like To help them do work That you like them doing And so this is how it works here Instead of us sending people Some bullshit keychain Or a stubby holder Or a You know Remember when it was all tote bags Like whatever you signed up to You got a tote bag I remember having this conversation Saying I I would I would happily pay People ten dollars To not send me a tote bag Like (laughs) That's That's what I'm paying for I'm paying for not having to deal With another tote bag
1: And you end up having your favourite tote bag don't you I, I know with shopping here where there's no plastic yeah. bags or whatever that's the case in Australia as well no, isn't yeah no pretty much so you can
0: buy yeah. some at the shop but yeah
1: but in our case like we've got our favourite couple of shopping tote bags mm, of and even have. though we've got maybe 50 tote bags in the mm-hmm. house 48 of them sit in the cupboard totally. much like you we we regret the fact that we haven't got the sort of but you don't want to throw them away either. It feels profligate to chuck them in the bin. Mm. So, yes, I'm glad we do it this way rather than... Imagine we gave out tote bags with your face and my face on them. I don't think they'd be very popular. Mm,
0: yeah, I mean, you know, maybe. There'd, there'd, be, there'd be a handful among the final nerds community who might proudly...
1: We are about to start doing merch though, aren't we? Yeah. We, we should say that. We've been a bit sloppy on, on saying what we're doing and what we've got coming up. Yep. Part of what we've got coming up is the merch arrangement that you've been working through.
0: Yeah, look, it's happening, um, but the reason I haven't mentioned it is because I like being non-committal about things in case I don't get around to doing them, which has been the case with this so far. So watch this space. There will be some <laughs> some shirts and whatnot available at, at a point in time. I'm not going to say what point in time because our history with delivering people T-shirts is not good. Mm, it's, it's not true. Uh, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so... Nerd Pledge, this is the game and the game works with people sending us their contribution and it's not a round number like normal, Uh, it's, it's a specific number because it relates to cricket in some way and we have to work out what that relationship is. For instance, the first Nerd Pledge number, it's a double up, it's a double header which means that two different people have sent us this number but probably for different reasons. These people are Bob Tronson who I assume is linked to Mark Ronson in some way. Uh, It would be good if they could get together. Uh, And Dara O'Donovan, a.k.a. the big dog, the Irish great of the Melbourne pub cricket scene. $8.75. Is the number. So, what that means is that it's 875 in sequence in some way, could be 87.5, could be 875, any variation on 875. What does that mean in a cricketing sense? And, Adam, you are having first swing at 875
1: today. Yeah, I thought for the big dog, I'd go for another big dog, a big dog who ran in and looked like he was panting all the way to the crease throughout the course Mm -hmm. of the 90s, Angus Gus Fraser, whose most Famous performance in test cricket. It was when he took eight for 75 in the Bridgetown test of 1994. It was a fantastic performance from England in in many ways, a test they often sort of reflect on. Yeah, you've got the Emma John book, the Mark Butcher documentary on Sky Cricket a couple of years ago about cricket in the 90s. There's a few sort of touchstone mm-hmm. moments, and one of those that they often come back to is, is the win at Bridgetown. So to put it in context, England were 3-0 down coming into the fourth test and sort of careering towards a whitewash. Having done so well there in eighty nine ninety, 90 this was a, bit, a mm-hmm. bit different. But then in the, in the fourth test, first innings, they bat first and, and make big runs. 3.55, you know, Alex Stewart makes a century up against, you know, Kirtley and Courtney and Winston. Benjamin and Kenny Benjamin. I mean, it's a daunting <laughs> exercise playing yeah. uh, the West Indies uh, in that little period of time before they give up the the top ranking, if you like, to Australia about 12 months on, but here they're still going very nicely. The West Indies reply with 3.04, so England have a 51 run lead, and that's thanks to Gus Fraser. 8 for 75 from 28.5 overs, including Desmond Haynes, Richie Richardson, Keith Arthurton, Jimmy Adams, who was the number one ranked player in the world at that mm-hmm. time, Junior Murray. Then he cleaned up the tail, but us, you know, I can kind of, you know, you can kind of see his face, can't you? I mentioned panting on the way to the crease. He was always mm. exhausted, always had a red face, always looked like he was carrying about six injuries, but always yep. found a way to, to get the job done, especially in the Caribbean as it happens. So
0: Sort of like he looked like he just, I don't know, like he'd, like he'd slept in a steamer trunk, you know, <laughs> in a train carriage and then got out as it pulled up to the ground and just rolled onto the field and started to play. Like he just, everything about Gus Fraser looked like old laundry, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the clothes he was wearing and his purse, his 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 own person was just a pile of crumpled laundry.
1: I'm going to send this to Gus once we finished recording. So I
0: hope he likes the comparison to old laundry. <laughs> um, so second innings, England. Look, we all depend on old laundry, Gus. Without old laundry, um, we we like a, like a like a ball of crumpled up old tote bags in the bottom of a cupboard. So three
1: ninety four for seven. The second time around, England make uh, declared with Stewie completing his twin tons, famous twin tonnes, 143 to go with his 118, which means the West Indies are set 446. They're all out for 237. It's a huge win for England with Caddick and Tufnell doing the job on the final day. It's the West Indies' first loss at Bridgetown for more than half a century. So again, that kind of Mm. reiterates what a win it was for England. It wasn't Gus's best figures in Test cricket though. Uh, That came on the next tour of the Caribbean in uh, what would have been 97-98 when he took 8 for 53 at Port of Spain. However, that was in a loss. England still conspired to lose that Test match Because Carl Hooper had a worldly. Yeah, but Fraser finished with 46 test matches for 177 wickets at 27. I'm pretty sure he took more wickets for England than anyone else in the 90s. Uh, his mm. final outing was that brilliant MCG win in December 1998 when Darren Goff and Dean Headley did the business. There. They were running from mm. the field after that final wicket. I was sitting third deck, so the, the bit where the sun comes up on the, in the southern stand, mm. scoring every ball of that test, of course. And remember well when the Barmy Army, who were positioned in, I suppose, the old Bay 13 beneath... Me in the southern stand mm. Raced across towards the members When the final wicket was taken And England ran from the field It was kind of that old school Get the stumps mm. out of the ground And, and get off And, and there's that, that vision of Fraser crying As they, as they leave the field um, it, You know, sort of <laughs> tears of pride Understandably so Given, you look at his own journey He starts, you know, first... His first entry to Test cricket is, you know, the middle of the 1989 Ashes series when, what is it, 34 players are used or something like that? But, yeah, a decade (laughs) on, he had that finally tasted success against Australia. He played in the 99 World Cup as well, but, yeah, his final. One day international was when they lose to India in that two-day one day -er, uh, which uh, Mm -hmm. signals their early exit he went on to serve as the cricket correspondent for the independent Uh, he was a summariser on test match special and since 2009 he's been the boss at Middlesex the club where he played and captained uh, between 1984 and 2002 he's been an England selector from time to time and Mm. he had a Brilliant little cameo on Tailenders a few weeks ago. If you haven't heard it, uh, Gus walks past at Lord's when uh, when they're recording and ends up um, offering the various nuggets of gold. And I suppose I'll, I will see him at Merchant Taylors' School when Middlesex are playing uh, Leicestershire <laughs> this Sunday. Uh, so if you're listening to this on Sunday, I'll be out there uh, with Gus and co, uh, hopefully uh, shepherding Middlesex to a, a victory
0: after what's been a pretty tough season. Gus Fraser, eight seventy-five. I hadn't actually put two and two together that he's your currently your boss, basically. Kind of, so yeah. you, you had to be really <laughs> nice to him.
1: Well, I would be anyway. I, 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 I would be anyway. I, I would be anyway. He's one of the one of the more enjoyable
0: people to see around the circuit. What a bizarre thing that there used to be this. Yeah, you know, the, the people running onto the ground after the game. You're out there, you've done the business for your country and then you have to flee the field in fear of your own supporters <laughs> because of what kind of loose shit they might get up to when yes. they get to you. <laughs> They're like, they'll probably rip me strides off and carry them away into the southern stand. So but it's also it's like, like what,
1: what, what jumps out at me is what a relatively modern thing it is that we deny fans the chance mm. to do that. I mean, you look at any test match really in the 80s that was de rigueur. And even in the 90s, I say there that yeah, might have been a bit yeah. unusual by 1998? 99, 99, but you saw it certainly mm. in England in the mid 90s. That was quite common for crowds to storm the field. Even I mean, there's that one day international in the Caribbean yeah. in 1999. They got a bit out of hand with, with the bricks and the glass bottles <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, they got, and the cops. They got and got and a bit the... out of hand at the, at the end of that series. But yeah, you know what I'm saying. Say. And there's
0: the, there's the test match with the umpires who refused to come back and finish the overs on day six. Yes, <laughs> after it was it was called off at the well, end of World day Cup. 5. World
1: Cup 99. World Cup 99. When uh, when Bangladesh. Beat Pakistan. That's another pitch invasion mm. where they they because remember that that was a run out the tenth wicket, uh, mm. Sucklein Mushtaq, I'm pretty sure. What if Sucklein was given not out by the third umpire because mm. by that stage the Bangladesh fans had raided the pitch. were having a dance party on there. That surely, you know, surely the pitch was destroyed. Mm. What if the uh, the light went green instead of red and Pakistan had to continue on a pitch that was knackered from the fans yeah. raving on it? Been, <laughs> might have been
0: might have been a no result. Who knows (laughs) Got the glow sticks out on on the centre wicket I think I assume that Australia was the first country To bring in the no-one's allowed on the field thing Because, you know We've talked about this before The bullshit mythology of Australia Being a laid-back, easy-going, larrikin country It was like, no Australia's a nation of cops Everyone's a cop And everyone loves being a cop Against other people So it's like, no, no, no You can't jump on the field Someone might trip over the fence And hurt themselves The last time I can remember people Running on a field in Australia When I was there was You'll know when this was better than I did When when Matthew Lloyd kicked 100 goals in a season Yeah, well you still see it for the 100 goals So when
1: Buddy kicked his 100th in 08 Who's the last to do so Well everyone ran on the ground I nearly ended Mm. up That's uh, that's one of the sort of moments of my peak mad fandom So 2008 Olympic Games I'm in Beijing with Rudd And we swing through I think it was Seoul and Singapore on the way home We get Mm -hmm. back to Canberra On the Saturday morning, and I say to my colleagues who who are absolutely spent after a week on the road with Rudd, you are, that is peak exhaustion, I suppose. And I said to my mates, okay, guys, I'll um, catch you in a couple of days. Like, what are you doing? He goes, well, now we're back at Canberra at the airport. I'm just jumping on a flight straight to Perth. Buddy's on 94 goals. There's no way I'm not going to that game tomorrow. So I flew across the country from Canberra to Perth to watch Buddy play on the Sunday. And of course, he didn't get there. He kicked four, not six. He was on ninety-eight, <laughs> and in the next week, uh, next weekend, I, I couldn't get out of work, so I was, I was watching it in the pub when he moved to one hundred. But I was there for all of Dunstall six. Um, when he he went to 100 goals and ran on the ground for a few of those. so It's a great tradition. I hope it remains in the game. In the unlikely event, a player gets to three figures again.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's probably not not super likely um, in the modern age. Now, we're still on the first number, so we should probably move this along. Uh, Dara O'Donovan had the 875 with Gus Fraser and Bob Tronson sent us through a clue and the clue consisted of one word and that one word was waiting... With an ellipsis Right So it's something to do with runouts And uh, I looked at a bunch of different things To try to solve this Because 875 and runouts Obviously no one's been run out 875 times And anything less than that We're starting to deal with decimals And I was struggling to Think of this until I don't have a firm number on this But the only thing I could come up with was You may remember uh, Rob Moody Rob Alinda too Putting up the video compilation of every run-out that Steve Waugh was involved with in international cricket. Mm. 104 run-outs that he was in the middle for, 73 of which involved the other person being run-out. And Rob did the compilation. He's a Steve Waugh fan, but he put it up. And, of course, Shane Warne jumped on it and went, See, I told you Steve Waugh was a selfish player and all the kind of usual shit that he likes to bang on about when it comes to SR War. So... That was supposedly evidence, right, because more times his partner got run out than he did. And at the time, I wrote a piece about it. I went through the compilation, I watched every single one and I kept notes about which ones were... Bad calls, which ones were definitely Steve Waugh's fault, which ones weren't. And the majority of them, there were some weird ones with Mark Waugh because they had a strange chemistry with runouts anyway.
1: Well, they didn't um, call, did they? they? they, they, they the, yeah. the problem with their runouts were neither player called, they almost did it on gut instincts.
0: Yeah, and so they ended up in trouble some of the time. A lot of them were in the last four or five overs of a one day international where you take on the field, you know, and if you're Steve Waugh, who's played 150 tests and what, 300 and something one dayers, you're going to be involved in a few run-outs if you're batting towards the end. So there were lots of like, you know, a good piece of fielding, at cover at the edge of the circle and there's a direct hit throw and someone's short. So I didn't keep exact numbers. I basically did a a sort of gauge of this, of of, of how many were Hmm. bad ones. And it was rough... So I don't have exact figures on it, but it could be—it could be possible that out of 104 runouts, maybe 87 and a half of them were not Steve War's fault. That's about the ratio that I because I, I I think I found something like six really bad ones, and maybe like a dozen or fifteen that were where you could say it's pretty clearly his fault, and then the others mostly weren't. And so that would kind of stack up that maybe it's 87.5 percent of them, or maybe it's 87 and a half of them in raw numbers were runouts where Steve War wasn't to blame out of the 104. That's the only thing I okay. can think of Bob. but that's my first that's my first guess. Now obviously Bob, you can send us clues in the DMs if you want to move us closer to an answer or this can also go to the crowd if anybody else out there 8.75 or 875 or something like that. The clue is waiting, and we assume it's related to runouts.
1: Very good. Jeff. we're into the 23rd minute of the show. We've dealt with one number. Let's get a wriggle on. 288 is the next. Two pounds 88 from Mm -hmm. WG Rumble Pants. Uh, The clue is nerd pledge of 288 to commemorate a successful Indian
0: summer. WG Rumble Pants, who's um, been doing that big mural you will have seen. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's an amazing bit of work. Mm. Uh, Featuring uh, every cricketer who, who WG feels... You know, has a moment of inspiration and thinks this player should be on there or gets a suggestion from somebody else and there are there are hundreds of cricketers on there already and more and more will, will be added so that's underway. yeah a successful Indian summer and and this this clue came through maybe three months ago so we're looking at something about India's tour to Australia I assume. I had a close look through the Gabba match. I'm looking for 288 remember mm-hmm. Washington Sundar conceded 2.87 and over. While picking up three wickets in the first innings, so not that he also, as it happened, took India past the score of two eighty eight in the run chase in the fourth innings. When he hit that six off Pat Cummins, that sort of pick up pull shot off the off the front shoulder that you'll remember well. I do. Yeah, that was uh, that. That was when you kind of
1: thought there's something going on here. That, that's a significant mm-hmm. moment in that Test match.
0: Exactly that. So he's he's very close to two versions of two eighty eight in. The Gabba test, Washington Sundar, but neither of them quite land on it. But if we wind things back further to Sydney, something starts to make sense. Chiteshwa Pajara got out eight overs before the tea break. From then until tea, they, the score barely moved. And then after tea, it was going up in singles because Ravichandran Ashwin was farming the strike, basically. Hanuma Vihari was injured. Um, Hazelwood and Cummins were both bowling after tea, really Giving it a, a, it was, that was kind of the one last burst bit. We're going to batter them with short balls. And so Ashwin was trying to spare Vahari from, from being on strike. So he was farming the strike as best he could. And the score after five overs of this bouncer. Can't wait out, to get you was, to the Gabba. Yeah, the score had got up to 284. you got no mates, champ. Got no mates. No one likes you. No um, one likes you. In this seat, sequ- <laughs> can't wait to get you to the Gabba for the Brisbane 2032 <laughs> Olympics. <laughs> We have to find a way to get that. <laughs> it's got to happen. <laughs> um, he might do. It. I think T Pain's got a. He's got a sense of humour in there. He, might, yeah, it's he true. might Be willing. He does. It'd probably be, be. There'd be a bit of coin in there as well. Probably if you could. Sheets. Um, yeah. The, the IOC. <laughs> you look. You might not get cash uh, in hand. You get it in a brown paper bag, or you get some nice jewellery, or you know. Put some, it this way. You're not some really.
1: You're not paying tax
0: on it. Yeah. Some really expensive luggage, maybe. Like there'd be. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be worth your while one way or another so, so in this five over spell of bouncers Ashwin starts it off the first ball after tee He overturns the court behind when he's given out Supposedly off the glove but it's come off the arm guard And so he's still there And in the fifth over of these bouncers The score's on 284 He gets hit in the ribs by Cummins And then he has that dodgy shot the next ball Where he sort of pokes at one and it comes off the shoulder of the bat Over the cordon for four the score at that point is 288, the score that the WG Rumble Pants, the number that was sent through, 288. And that's the moment when Ashwin's a bit shaken up and he gets another short ball and he plays a pull shot. And he's been not playing the pull shot all day, but he plays the pull shot by habit, by instinct, and he hits it to square leg and Sean Abbott, the subfielder, dies across and drops the catch. And that's, I reckon, the turning point of the series. Yeah. That's the point where... Ashwin doesn't offer another chance. He bats through another 30 overs with Fahari. They save the test match, deny Australia a 2-1 lead, and they go on to win at the Gabba in the following match and win the series. So at 288, that's when the key moment happens. That's when the catch goes down, and that's what I think this number refers to.
1: Very good. And WG Rumble Pants, I'm going to call an audible here. I'm going to say that... On the basis of your great clue and Mm -hmm. uh, the fantastic work you're doing with the mural, which will circulate on social media during the week, that you are the recipient of the Brick Lane Brewing Community slab of beer that we're issuing twice a week on The Final Word now, our new association Mm -hmm. with Brick Lane Brewery. Jeff, uh, it means that we're in a position to, yes, gift... A carton of beer, a case of beer, a slab of beer uh, to one of our, mm-hmm. our patrons, uh, one of our proud patrons on, on each program.
0: Now, WG, if, if I'm assuming that WG means that you're in the UK, um, you, will, you will need to find somebody in Australia who can have this. That's the catch. Uh, the, the idea is send some some beer to someone you like. It could be you if you live in Australia, but it has to be someone in Australia, otherwise they can't get access to it. So we shall be in contact with you in the DMs, WG. G. And let's make sure that we remind people as well, Jeff, that
1: you should follow uh, Brick Lane Brewery on all the social media platforms. That'll be in the show notes, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the rest. You would have heard in in Jay's intro earlier how to do that as well. So follow uh, Brick Lane Brewery. We're two weeks into what we hope will be a long and proud association. Uh, they are based in uh, the southeast suburbs of Melbourne, Dandenong where I'm from. They do their finest work at the Queen Victoria Market where they're in operation four nights a week. And of course you can buy plenty yourself for, uh, from the website bricklanebrewing.com which will also uh, be there in the show notes and uh, yes as we say each week it, it'll be straightforward we'll just pick at random really <laughs> one of our patrons to be afforded the chance to uh, get some beer sent to them
0: or send it to one of their pals that's it send a number get a drink uh, what's coming up next we've got sean barry And we've got $4.62. That's the number. Sean sent through a clue for you, Adam. He says, We Kiwis recently lost a much underrated player, a graceful Gower-esque left-hander, a fine player of spin, a real servant for New Zealand cricket as player and administrator, a cousin of an Australian Test cricketer, who also had a far too brief career. My nerd pledge stroked a beautiful ton at the Basin in a Plunkett Shield game that is one of the best I've seen live. Uh, so the number is 462.
1: Yeah, uh, thanks for this, Sean. This is um, this is John Fulton Reid, not to be mistaken, with John Richard Reid, who's the John Reid that I suppose is more well-known of the two New Zealand John That the latter being the, the great all-rounder who was... Very much ahead of his time But John Fulton But Reed, also
0: underrated I, I, Like J.R. Reid you know, Jared Kimber talks about him a lot as, yes. this, as a very underrated player And he is But if you're the More underrated of the two John Reeds That's when you're in real underrated territory. Yeah,
1: that that's right And in the case of uh, John Fulton Reid Or John Reid as we will call him From this point forward He passed away uh, Towards the end of last year And there are a number of tributes To what a champion uh, he was 19 test matches Between 1978 and 1986 Averaging 46 uh, Jeff, you'll be interested to know though that he definitely ticks the box in one of your spreadsheet categories so six test hundreds and only two other scores uh, above 50 so in terms of a con- conversion uh-huh. rate uh, that's even better than Bradman 69 percent. so that is significant that he really did go on with it Uh, One of those centuries was at Brisbane in 1985, New Zealand's first win in Australia. Of course, we all know what Richard Hadley did with his nine-wicket bag to start the Test match, but they had to pile on the runs after that, and they did with Reid making 108, putting on 284... Uh, with Martin Crow. He played other very significant innings uh, around the world. One in Hyderabad against Pakistan where he made 106 in 1984 where the next highest score was 39. And it won't surprise you, Jeff, when you look at the numbers, that was in the first innings. He had this massive disparity between batting the first time around and the second time around. Um, 68 uh, in the first innings of a match for New Zealand and 12 in the second, so a margin there of 56. But that's okay because he uh, he certainly uh, got a move along at the start of test matches. He was the quickest for New Zealand uh, to 1,000 test runs in 20 innings, joint with Mark Richardson, who pulled level with him uh, in 2003. But no-one's done it quicker for the Black Caps than that. He was a dedicated educationalist off the field. Indeed, he gave up a tour to the West Indies in order to stick with his teaching and not sort of leave his students in the lurch, which I think was quite commendable. When he finished playing international commendable
0: cricket... commendable for, for, for... He was a geography teacher, right? He was, yeah. <laughs> and, he, and Like... He, <laughs> That's a big commitment. to It's very important that my students know where Addis Ababa is. Yeah, well. I can't. I can't countenance them not knowing that for another six months. No, I'll stay home. That, that was uh, that
1: was the airport where I watched the speaking of football in England, the uh, third place playoff hmm. for the for the World Cup in uh, 2018. When Rach and I had a six six hour stopover there in Ethiopia, quite the airport. But yes, in in the case of Reed, uh, he stayed in the game. He went into administration when he retired. He was the high-performance boss, so he had a lot to do with the, the junior players coming through. He went on to coach the men's team. He coached the women's team as well. Uh, so, yeah, he touched a lot of people in the game across across generations. It wasn't just a group of players he, he went around with in the 70s and 80s. So when he passed away on, on the 28th of December last year after a, a long battle with cancer at age 64, um, there was a significant outpouring of emotion which is felt there through Sean Barry's uh, tribute to him in in The Clue. The Plunkett Shield innings that uh, Sean refers to, that might need some um, recoding or decoding. I had a look through every innings he played uh, at the Basin, and there's only one century, and that's in a Test match in 1985 uh, against Pakistan where he made 148 in... 527 minutes so in keeping With that mm. idea that he certainly was never In a hurry despite being a fluent left hander He knew how to hang around so What I might encourage you to do Sean is is Let us know why 462 is relevant to an innings That, uh, that he played in the Plunkett Shield it may have been somewhere other than the Basin Or maybe um, it was a, a different innings altogether but either way I'd like to add to this story in the confirmations next Week but and the other bit of the clue in terms Of his uh, cousin who played Test cricket for Australia of course was the left arm quick Bruce Reed.
0: It could have been At the other There's another ground In Wellington isn't there Two first class grounds Yeah well there's where, Two
1: professional grounds There's also the cake tin But this specifically said
0: No um, but there's an older First class ground as well I think I can't, I can't remember The particulars But I'm pretty sure There's a, there's another Ground where Plunkett Shield Games would have been Played in Wellington So it might have been
1: Yeah there. that could be it Yeah I suppose It says here your basins it might have been The other ground in Wellington But either way It was nice to have a look At the, the life and times Of John Fulton Reed.
0: Very good. Thank you, Sean. Uh, We're coming in to one from Will Sandford. The number is $5.66. What have you made of that initially?
1: Yeah, okay. So I I, am, you know, Jeff, and our listeners know that I love sequences, especially when they're unusual sequences. And this jumped out at me when looking at all the bowling figures of five for 66 in Test cricket. It's happened 31 times. So, you know, fairly often, that's not, rarities and oddities type analysis. Five for 66, you know, that happens. But only four bowlers have taken it twice. And what stood out to me is that the four bowlers who have taken it twice have all done it consecutively so rangy horton uh, was the first to do it and the second uh, against South africa mm-hmm. in melbourne 1911 and then against england at the scg in 1912 tiger o'reilly took those figures against england at melbourne in 1932 and then against england at leeds in 1938 with nobody in between then terry alderman who did it twice in the 1989 ashes series at manchester and then the Oval. And lastly, uh, Dan Vittori, both in 2008 against England at Manchester and then against Bangladesh at Dhaka. So, yeah, they're the only four who have taken it twice, but each time it's with nobody else taking the figures Mm. in between, which I thought was quite neat.
0: It is neat. I like it. I sort of enjoy your particular um, preoccupation with with the sequences. And you mentioned Ranji Horden. He's an interesting character who we're sort of... Briefly gestured at before on the show, but we haven't got into in, in a great deal of detail. But it, it's quite interesting that we've been having these cricketing doctors on the show recently. We talked about Dr. Roland Pope on last weekend's story time, I mm. think, who's the the doctor who got one test cap for Australia because the whole team was on the mm. strike and, <laughs> and they just had to grab anybody who was nearby who, who knew how cricket worked. Dr. Frank Pike we talked about on the midweek show who was not a cricketer but who fixed – Dennis Lilly's back uh, and then in Ranji Horden, you've got a, an early 1900s sort of pre-World War One bowler a, a leg break googly bowler as they used to call them back in the day who was also a doctor and because he was a doctor much like um, the geography teachings of, of John Reed he didn't like to tour because his commitment in the medical profession came first so even though he was a wonderful bowler he basically didn't want to go overseas he only played for australia in australia so he played in 1911 12 a number of test matches he played seven tests in all but they were all in melbourne sydney and and one test match in adelaide and the kind of uh, performances he was able to put together included that sydney test where he took 5 for 85 and then 7 for 90 uh, against england in 1911 and then 5 for 95 and and 5 for 66 against England in Sydney as well 5 wicket hauls in all took 5 for 66 against South Africa in Melbourne as well and in those conditions, those home conditions he was uh, able to do prodigious work with the ball, but didn't want to go away and do it overseas.
1: Yeah, and his name, Ranji. Obviously, it wasn't his name. His name was Herbert. But mm. and this, yeah, this this jars a little bit. Of course, he, he was called Ranji because of his dark complexion, which was you know a reference to Ranjasinji yes. that's, that's part of
0: the the charming racism of the time. That's how I say, fellow, you look. What's the yeah. you know, the Prince Philip thing about this fuse box looked like it was put together by an Indian? It's that kind of thing. You yeah. look a little bit dark. We'll call you with this. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's, I mean, such I, I, were the times. I, yeah, I
1: suppose those were the times, yeah. But that's, um, if you're wondering why there was a player called Ranji, it wasn't that he was from mm. what was from um, Indian subcontinent extraction. It, it was on account of the fact that, yes, there was this sort of tacit racism in the community at the time, which extended to the test team, which shouldn't really surprise us. But anyway, that's the full stop on the story about Ranji Horden, uh, who we had there listed for 566. Jeff, next mm-hmm. up. We have 727. This is
0: our final new number of the week from ED. Yes, two initials, ED, or somebody very loudly saying, Ed! Uh, I'm not sure which. (laughs) Ed or ED has sent through a clue, saying this is not the same 727 as Ilya Andrews pledged in Storytime 41, nor is this a cricket line score, but it is a cricket-related number. I don't know if this helps with understanding formatting, but I'm American, and so that, Tends to indicate that it must be a date because Americans do things differently and that 727 must relate to the 27th of July in some way. Which is a very significant date, a very yep.
1: significant date. But I'll swing through to a perhaps less significant story quickly first. Because I was having a conversation about this just a few weeks ago with Nick Knight, who made his test debut at Old Trafford in 1995 against the West Indies. And that was the test match where Sunlight stopped play, where Dickie Bird... This was when the square (laughs) at Old Trafford, as you know, Jeff, was the other way around. And there was a reflection. I suppose it must have been over on the eastern side of the ground where the old Old Trafford Mm -hmm. number two, whether now that the temporary permanent temporary stand stands... Um, yep. a bit of a tongue twister there There was some light reflecting <laughs> off that Back towards the pitch And Dickie Bird said 20 minutes before tea This is too much, we're, we're going off the field So sunlight stop play mm. But yes, um, <laughs> let's go across the Pennines To um, the 27th of July 1948 Which, um, you know, is It's hard to Mount the case That it's not The greatest chase In Test cricket History Mm. 1948 ashes England You know Sort of decimated By this point 2-0 down in the series The ashes were gone But Australia had won 20 on the trot And of course Norman Yardley And co Did not want This Bradman team To to go uh, undefeated Across the country And this was their Best chance at Leeds They make 496 in the first innings. Sarah Washbrook and um, Bill Edrich make hundreds, of superb contribution there. Australia fight back, though, of course. Uh, they make 458. Neil Harvey gets his first game, his first test match uh, on the tour. Of course, he made a century against the touring Indians mm. in Australia, which got him on the boat But at 19 years of age, makes 112, an innings that yeah, was spoken of uh, for, for decades for how graceful it was. Down the list, Sam Loxton made 93. And by the end of it all, yeah, they've made 458. And would you believe, Jeff, based on our conversation mm. on the weekly show last week, the first three overs of that test match, 330 overs. Were achieved So they'd (laughs) earned their rest day Their their Sunday off was uh, one they had warranted After doing so much across the field For both teams Australia bowling for uh, I think Australia bowled for I wrote it down somewhere Can't see it now They bowled for about half of the 330 anyway So when they come back from their rest day on the Monday England keep on keeping on 365 for 8 declared in 107 overs They declared just into the final day Australia have 345 minutes to chase 404 It was the hottest day of the year. It was a packed Mm -hmm. crowd. Over 30,000 people were there at Headingley. And to put that into context, in in 301 test matches before this one, there'd only been two successful chases over 300, Australia and Adelaide in 1901-02, which was 315 and England hauled down 332 at the MCG in their brilliant tour of Australia in in 1928-29. So this just didn't happen. I mean, the record's Mm. 332. They've been set 404. They've got, you know, 345 minutes to Mm. do it. But sure enough, Bradman said, we're going to have a pop, and they did. Arthur Morris You know Got the party started Uh, He made 182 In 291 minutes The majority of that Was with Bradman Who was playing in What turned out to be uh, His second last test match They put on 301 So that number again 301 For the second wicket Taking it to 358 And then Morris gets out And they need 46 runs In 54 minutes and Bradman has Miller with him briefly, then Harvey with him at the end, and he just keeps powering on and powering on and finishes on 173 not out. Australia get the job done. They win by seven wickets with 15 minutes to spare. But Mm -hmm. the win, and I didn't know this bit. This is the bit I didn't know from this story until reading back through. The win is secured Mm -hmm. by Neil Harvey. Century in the first innings, and hits the winning runs, a boundary. So four not out uh, when they run off the field. Uh, I'm sure the crowd were, were invading the pitch, as was the custom, as we talked about earlier. <laughs> but it was Bradman's penultimate test innings. Now, it was his 19th time against England. He passed 5,000 test runs against England in the process. No one's come close to anything like that before mm. or since. But you think about it. If Bradman hits the winning runs, he will advance from 6,996 oh. to 7,000, which would have meant oh. that even after being dismissed... A couple of weeks later in the first innings at the Oval by Eric Holly's second ball. Even had that still happened, he would have finished with an average of an even 100. But because Harvey hit the boundary instead, Bradman (laughs) finishes with an average of 99.94. So I did not know that. And I mean, again, it was was fitting that it was Bradman's penultimate innings, his 29th and final Mm. test ton, a match-winning one, an unbeaten 173, and all achieved on the 27th of July
0: 1948. Yeah, well, that's that's uh, another of those little moments. I suppose if they had not been so good at the Oval and had had to bat twice, then he yes. might have had the chance to make some runs as well. But or he could have got out while trying to hit the boundary during the run chase in in the fourth test, and thus ended up with the same average anyway. Maybe these so. these are the things we'll never know. Yeah, the, the 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 sunlight stops play thing. It's um it's quite interesting. I remember doing that that game after the World Cup final in 2019 when you were vomiting green bile. I I wrote about this (laughs) in the book where I went down to Canterbury to do commentary for the uh, Australia A and England Lions game with about three people at the ground. Still no idea how you
1: made it to the ground in time. Not a clue how you achieved that.
0: Nor nor do I. Not a a clue either. But there was this moment during the afternoon session where we're sitting up in the little commentary box and it has those windows in it that open from the bottom where you push out the bottom. Love that ground. All the players on the pitch start waving to the stands and we're, we're on air going, "Oh, there must be some idiot who's walked across the sight screen or something a plays stopped, and they're still going, they're still waiting, and we're like, "Oh shit, are they waving at us?" Like, we're not doing anything. We're not moving. They are waving at us. They're waving at us because the windows are open and they're at such an angle that the sun is glancing off the glass straight into the eyes of the batting player facing us when the (laughs) the bowl is coming in from our end. So we have to shut all the windows in the com box in order to get the game going again. You never mean to interrupt a game, but it can happen
1: despite your best intentions. Very nice. Uh, Thank you, E.T., for that generous pledge. It must be said. 727. Let us know whether we've got it right. That's our last (laughs) new number, patron.com. Forward slash the final word is where you make your nerd pledge. We mentioned on the weekly show, we've dropped behind Jimmy again, it being a new month, so we'll need to uh, pile on a few extra pledges before he starts uh, his next test match on the 4th of August. Mm. And, of course, the probability of you winning a slab of beer, when you think about it, it's quite high. We we do about Mm. five numbers on the weekend and one number Mm -hmm. on the weekly show. That's all at random, of course. It's where it comes up in in Jeff's spreadsheet. But it probably means you're about a two in six or two in seven chance of getting mm-hmm. a slab of beer upon signing up to Nerd Pledge, so I hadn't really I'd considered that. this. I take but those but odds; they are good yeah. odds. They are good odds. And if you're mm. and if you're somebody who's already pledged, it doesn't preclude you from pledging again, setting a new number, which right. puts you your name back in the hat to win the, the case of beer. Mm-hmm. Thanks to Brick Lane Brewing Community. So yes, all of their information in the show notes. Thanks to them. Thanks to everybody who is part of what we do on Nerd Pledge and Patron. What we will do now is take a break, consider our thoughts, revisit a couple of numbers that we've gotten wrong in previous weeks confirm a few others and say goodbye
0: hi i'm brian Roddle.
1: you're listening to the final word with jeff lemon and adam collins a big week for the final word and the lord's tabs jeff we've got Decla lawler who by the time this goes public i suppose he will be mm-hmm. at the end of roughly the end of day one of his ultra marathon mm-hmm. times four when he runs the thames track 180 miles in the space of four days crazy but brilliant and we love him for it as he's detailed yep. in the past he heard about the Lord's Tab's magnificent work on the final word and thought he wants to be part of the fun and part of the, um, the fundraising effort in these challenging times so uh, well played Declan Lawler I can't wait to hear how it goes and we'll report back indeed we'll get you on the show next week to tell us all about it
0: but Jeff he's not the only final worder to uh, get busy on behalf of the tabs. What I'm slightly worried about is, given this will be after the first day, it could also be the point where Declan Lawler's Achilles tendon has exploded (laughs) and and he's been carted off to the rehab ward. But we don't know because we're recording this before it's begun. So uh, I'm hoping that's not the case and I hope you've got through the first day, Declan. Yeah, Nick Tewson has been doing a big old bike ride through various places in the northwest of England, uh, three days going up and down mountains, also raising money for the Lords Tav. So this is a very nice thing that started happening, which is people Mm -hmm. listening to the show saying, you know what, Uh, let's go and do something fun-ish, difficult, challenging, but rewarding, have a look at the countryside and also raise some money. So let's take a tour through the countryside. It'll be like (laughs) Michael Portillo's series on trains or whatever from Nick Tewson. Our starting eleven set out from the sleepy town of Whitehaven on the northwest coast of England for our three-day journey across the country to the beaches of Tynemouth in the east. We started on a gentle track through the Cumbrian countryside towards our first major climb, Windlater. Windlater is also the name of the place you go to when you've eaten a lot of beans. They've been doing a lot of training in the hills of North London, so uh, yep, that was very useful. Up like, near going me. down the other side. Up near, up up near I'm, I'm on the other side of Muswell Hill now, so
1: uh, well, we used to live. <laughs> He in Muswell Hill, but now we're in just North Valley Pally, so didn't realise he was a local.
0: Going down the other side, we arrived right at a different, slipperier challenge as we rode down on rocks and shale. But everyone got safely down as we went through Keswick in the Lake District, and our destination for the first night, Penrith. But this was not the Penrith This writer is accustomed to Home of the Panthers The Benos And Patrick Cummins This Penrith had a market square A ruined castle And a row of delightful bed and breakfasts Yeah, Not, <laughs> yeah, not necessarily not the one, what you'd find Yeah, not the one out near the Rudy Hill RSL
1: For the you know for the uh, the Sky News After Dark debate Where we'll get on there And uh, get a bunch of fucking nif in To ask you questions <laughs> before the election
0: <laughs> mm. How much money has Gus Cool made out of the pokies At the Penrith Leagues Club this year? Let's go to the line Five count <laughs> yes uh, their, their second day was 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 more intense um, they did a did a bunch of hard up and downs, some some pretty steep climbs and then moved their way to day three a difficult early climb followed by a steady descent into Newcastle and on to Tynemouth or well, so we thought an errant turn saw us climb what we believed to be our only ascent for the day only to realize once we reached the valley on the other side that we had done a loop and were back in a town we had ridden through <laughs> the day before. <laughs> A quick team talk and we made the decision to follow the off-road route that split off from the town rather than retrace. This turned into what can best be described as a very tired four-wheel drive track up the side of a hill we battled through. Finally, our last big climb was done and we followed some lovely old railway tracks to the River Derwent and eventually to the Tyne. We reflected on a grueling but enjoyable and rewarding three days. I'm so happy to have raised money for the Lord's Taverners, and we look forward to the next adventure. Thank you, Nick.
1: That is outstanding. Imagine that. Imagine getting all the way through and realizing that the ride that you've done for the previous 24 hours got you back to where you started. It's like the subplot of a bad film. Well, actually, the subplot of a very, very good film in Gallipoli where they go around in that big circle at one stage early on in the film. Good on you, Nick. I mean, that's brilliant. Earnest time. I mean, you know, Lord's Tabs do great stuff. We've told that story many times. If you're new to the final word, you will not necessarily know that they've been in operation for 70 years and the work they do is vital for some of the most disadvantaged uh, members of our community, whether it be people with disabilities or other disadvantages in life and uh, young people especially. So we're proud to be in association with them. Lordstavs.com, it's all there in the show notes. If you Not only if you want to contribute month to month, but also if you want to do a challenge like Nick's done or like Declan's done it would be cool to tell these stories as we work through the rest of 2021.
0: Hi, my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff.
1: It's Final Word, it's story time. It's the show with brand new artwork. Thanks to Cam Fink for that, by the way. We neglected to mention Mm -hmm. that off the top. But if you're seeing the new artwork, that's thanks to our brilliant... Mm -hmm. I don't even know how to describe him, is a video journalist, Cam Fink, who often works with us, but he's been busy creating graphics for the weekend show. Uh, We have some numbers to revisit, only a couple this week. We'll have a lot more next week. Uh, The first of those is from Peter Roberts. We uh, were looking at, or Jeff, rather, was looking at the the North of the Brassy Line story, which was a lot of fun and very entertaining, but didn't Mm -hmm. quite stick the landing. He he arrived at an SCG link because SCG has Aussie rules played on it, also is obviously a cricket ground first and foremost mm-hmm. and He didn't quite get there Peter says As a professional historian I give you an A for the discussion of the Brisbane line And the Barassi line Just the kind of excellent storytelling And that's your hallmark But I was thinking of a specific person For whom the north of the Barassi line clue is relevant Have a look at the mm-hmm. 2003 World Cup It's another good story At least in my humble opinion uh, Jeff, take it away
0: Well, we've been talking about cricketing doctors Have we not, Adam? And if we look at the 2003 World Cup, one name stands out: Doctor Rudy Van Vuren. <laughs> Doctor Rudy, uh, he played for Namibia. Uh, now he'd played various games for Namibia and, and local teams against the touring MCCs, Zimbabwe A, sort of touring sides like the Bangladeshis, preparing in the early 2000s. But then Namibia qualified for the 2003 World Cup. That expanded sort of a situation that they had and Namibia were in there. And Dr. Rudy got a call up. He had a good time. He made news when Australia absolutely thumped Namibia when Glenn McGrath took the seven for fifteen, was it? Yep. And uh, and Rudy got smacked for twenty eight in and oh, yes. over Darren by Lehman. A <laughs> Darren Lehman. <laughs> dazzling Darren Lehman, which was the record in ODIs at the time, but it How, was hadn't not he, he, hadn't
1: hadn't Rudy played? And maybe you're going to come to this, and if you are, cut mm-hmm. me off. But hadn't Rudy played rugby union for Namibia like not long before the World Cup, if I recall correctly?
0: Uh, not quite. Well, he well he had played before the 03 World Cup. He would played in the ninety nine Rugby World Cup, right? Okay. Um, for Namibia as well. So, yeah, 28 in and over is no longer the record, so Rudy's off the hook there, but it was the first five for, for Namibia in one-day internationals. have been a couple since. He knocked over your mate Nick Knight and also got Michael Vaughan both within the power play, both pulling to mid-wicket. Don't take on the short ball. When Rudy Van Vuren at five foot eight bowling at about 118 kilometres an hour, <laughs> bowls you a short ball, you respect it. You don't pull it straight to mid-wicket in the circle. And then he came on to bowl the 50th over and picked up three wickets in the 50th. He got Craig White and Ronnie Irani caught in the deep and then hit all three stumps when Andy Caddick tried to have a big shot off the last ball. Also, Andy Caddick played a lap shot in that innings, the 49.5 um, <laughs> delivery. He got down on one knee and played a lap sweep. 2003 So It's been around longer Than you think You you think of it as a modern thing Andy Caddick Ahead of his time
1: (laughs) Always thought of as a a Modern man Andy Caddick
0: Always (laughs) thought of as a
1: Really on the cutting edge Of fashion And culture (laughs) Andy (laughs) Caddick
0: Look, you, d- you, don't, you don't get architecture named after you at Somerset if you're not on the cutting edge. <laughs> you get architecture um, named after you at Somerset if you've done fucking anything. Everybody's
1: <laughs> got a pavilion named after them. Not to say that Caddy didn't deserve one for his 1,100 first-class wickets, but let, let's keep a lid on. I mean, everything is named after someone there.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> those, yeah. Flats on the left, on, those flats on the western side of the ground where all the retirees live in, they're, they're going to have every individual balcony named after a cricketer by the time they're done.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody who's got a cap, every Somerset cap. This is the, <laughs> the, the somebody's shrub, somebody's somebody's <laughs> sewer grating. The, the Sir Garfield Sobers waiting area at Trent Bridge. That is still the ulti- That's the pinnacle of the art form. Yeah, cause you, got,
1: the, you, got the, two- you got the Sobers on one side and Hadley, who took like seven hundred mm. wickets for knots. There's one of. I mean, give him a stand. Give Hadley a yep. you know a bit more than a waiting area. I, I appreciate mm. that he's alongside Sobers, and thus it has a bit more you know oomph. But but still, yep. I, I don't think four seats underneath underneath some kind of like uh, you know interrogation lights quite does it for me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like it's the landing at the bottom of the stairs with a couple <laughs> of IKEA couches in it. And they're like, "This looks like the spot that brings to mind sir Garfield sobers i'm back there I, I'm
1: back there in, in a couple of weeks jeff i'm I'm doing the knots test, so I will go up and um I'll take a lot of photos for the patron page in fact, we might even do a video one of the stumps videos we'll do one in front of the Hadley yeah. waiting area and one in front of the sobers
0: waiting area yeah please let so it lets you and I go there next time i'm <laughs> I'm in that part of of the world as well. We'll shoot something special, maybe we can get the history of maybe we can you know we can go and interview." The club about how it came to pass. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure. We Maybe do we that. can get Sir Richard on the line and find out how he feels about having the waiting area named after him. I'm us. sure
1: Simon Old Trafford will tell us all about it. Who's our resident mm. final word, Trent Bridge correspondent? I might drop him a line.
0: Very good. So, yes, yeah, so Rudy finishes with five for forty-three. Uh, the number that Peter Roberts sent through five for three. And uh, that is, that's what happens in this game. England make 272. Namibia could maybe have chased it at one point. They ended up nine for 217. Dr Rudy, 12 not out there at the end, doing his bit. But the Barassi line link is that this all happens in February 2003. And as you foreshadowed, Adam, by October 2003, Rudy was in Sydney, north of the Barassi uh, line, right. playing rugby union yes. for Namibia. So he, he was playing in his second World Cup, but in doing this double, he became the first man to play in a World Cup in two different sports in the same year. Uh, and I think he's still the only one to do that. So Namibia dearly got pumped in the Rugby World Cup. They got beaten 142-0 by Australia. <laughs> it must have been a fun day out. Rudy was a pretty decent rugby player, uh, probably more so than a cricketer, but he was injured through most of that tournament. He missed the first three games and, and they only played four games and he came on with ten minutes to go in the fourth game as a sort of um, token sympathy run on to, so that he had actually played at that tournament, which... He has done and he thus has that record. And then he went back to Namibia, back to his medical practice, which is mostly about uh, treating AIDS patients, and also started a wildlife sanctuary. If in case you had any, you know, just wanted to round out being the sort of all round high achiever, you know. Ah, oh, yes, when I'm treating uh, medical patients at my wildlife sanctuary, <laughs> I like to reflect on the time I dismissed Sachin Tendulkar in the 2003 <laughs> World Cup. Fuck off. I mean, come on. That's who can compete with that? Rudy, leave. Some crumbs for the rest of us, please. That, that's, yeah, that's uh, a hell of a Tinder
1: profile, isn't it, for Dr. Rudy playing a couple of World Cups, saving AIDS patients, at the start of the wildlife sanctuary. I've seen Namibia across Lake Malawi where I spent some time about ten yeah. years ago, but I've never actually been there. I, I wish to go there. When this is all over, when mm. um, we're travelling again, yeah. I will get to Namibia. I'm inspired he's, by that story.
0: He, he's the only person who could have a Tinder photo of him with a tiger where it would be legit. It wasn't just a drugged tiger in Thailand. Um, <laughs> you know, but it was he's like, No, I was treating this tiger for or, you know, which had a sore foot, and I was uh, drawing the thorn from its paw with my teeth. I wonder uh, really. whether
1: there's been anyone that's met on a dating app. I mean, I suppose cricket has drawn people together, hasn't it, on these dating apps? But by virtue of both being listeners to our show, I kind of doubt it. I don't think. I think we would know about it by now if oh. that were the case. But.
0: Um, if if any two listeners of The Final Word have hooked up, we want to know about it. Yeah, this is I, I what mean, we're saying, really, basically. really
1: want to know about it. Okay, uh, <laughs> thank you, uh, Peter, for allowing us to have another swing at your number and tell a good story on the way through. The next revisit today is Alan Simpson, 199. We talked about Phil Hughes' first one-day international, century on debut, the 199th player to attempt that, uh, but the first to achieve it. Alan wants us to know that, that it relates, actually, to a player's first-class wickets tally for Warwickshire with a best of seven for 34. His highest score was an unbeaten 86 and no mug with the bat either. He did not play a test match, but Pelham Warner predicted a bright future for him before he went to Flanders Fields and sadly did not return. The literary connection is by far the most notable part of his story, although the player was almost certainly not aware of the character he inspired at the time of his death. The final word story time is the perfect place for him to be remembered, hence my pledge. His name will indeed live forevermore. Very good, sir.
0: Yes, well, this this rang all the bells. Very good, sir. Is of course uh, the the catchphrase of Percy Jeeves, who is. Uh Known to the world as the unflappable butler of the very flappable Bertie Wooster in the P.G. Woodhouse books, and you know that Jeeves is important because the books. There's a sort of collection of novels and short stories that were published in magazines and so on across decades by Woodhouse, but they're always referred to as the Jeeves stories rather than the Wooster stories. So the butler is, or the valet, really. He wasn't a, strictly a butler because he was a, a man servant. He was a valet, a personal valet, and he was always there. He was always on point when a problem needed to be solved. And he was named after a cricketer. So the real Percy Jeeves was a medium-fast sort of bowler who started with Warwickshire in 1912. I didn't know this, but they used to have residential requirements for county sides, Adam, where oh, if, right. you, if you wanted to play in the county championship, you had to have lived in the county for two years first. But you could play for the county in other fixtures that weren't county championship games so someone at Warwickshire had seen Jeeves bowling and wanted to pick him up they got him to move into the county and, and hang about and play some cricket for Mosley and so on which is one of the, the local clubs there's a nice uh, Mosley folk festival just down the road from Edgebaston during the summer in the UK um, and so he was hanging about there for a bit And there was a season where he played twice this is right in our areas he played against the two touring sides for the triangular test tournament in 1912 he played for warwickshire against the australians and against the south africans but he couldn't play in the county champs because he hadn't lived there long enough yet okay okay well
1: that that certainly is not the case anymore remember they used to have those um requirements with yorkshire as well didn't they where you had to have Been born within the, I mean, I don't know whether it was the like the Bowbells in East London, but, you know, born, <laughs> born within, uh, you know, a certain number of miles from, from heading, right. presumably. And when that started to break down, I think it was in the mid-90s when these residency requirements mm-hmm. or where you were born stopped being a thing. And, of course, the game's completely changed. But in a way, I quite like that. I mean, I like the idea that you play for the county where you were born adds an mm. extra level of mystique to the whole thing. But I can see why yeah. it was a big thing back then.
0: So so that first season, he plays those two first-class games, but then it's the next one, 1913, that's when he's qualified for Warwickshire fully. He takes 106 wickets in his first season, 90 wickets in his second season, and makes over 1,200 runs with 450s in those two seasons. And then... That's 1914, his second season, and he joins up during the First World War. So Woodhouse saw him playing at the Cheltenham Cricket Festival, mm. which is another this nice week. connection. It's the, in... final day. it's the
1: final day of the – well, not the final day of the festival today, as we record, but the final day of the first class game that Middlesex are playing uh, against Gloucestershire mm. at Cheltenham as part of the festival back this year.
0: So he, he was playing there in 1913 and Woodhouse saw him, liked his bowling and liked the name and, and kept hold of the name and decided to use it, a bit like Arthur Conan Doyle. Parrott sort of maybe probably got his Sherlock Holmes names from various cricketers. There was one called Shacklock and there was Percy Holmes knocking about and there was a Watson involved as well, I think, at that time. So... Uh, that's 1913, the first Jeeves story gets published in 1915 and in 1916 the real Jeeves is killed in action at the Somme at the age of 28 and these days there's a tree planted in his honour at the Cheltenham ground where Woodhouse saw him play and that was Percy Jeeves with his 199 wickets for Warwickshire. I'm going to give you a little postscript to this one, Jeff.
1: George Isaac, who's a friend of ours who has been a diligent supporter of women's cricket especially... Uh, bouncing between uh, Melbourne, where she studied at RMIT, and London, where she's uh, worked in cricket for the last few years. George's grandfather passed away a few months ago, the great Murray Hedgecock at age 90, who was a prolific writer on all things England, back to the Australian newspaper for, for... I think over 30 years he was posted here for The Australian in in different forms, but he was uh, sort of a a classic uh, sort of two countries, foot-in-both-camp type. He was close with Rupert Murdoch. But he edited a collection of Woodhouse's cricket writing under the title Woodhouse at the Wicket in 1997, which was quite a a profound um, text at the time, I think, as far as his legacy was concerned in the game and was very involved. He was a Woodhouse enthusiast, you could say. But, yes, Murray Hedgecock, uh, a fantastic life. I first met Murray in 2015, At Merchant Taylor's Where I'll be On Sunday He was there Watching the Middlesex women play With Georgia Who was watching Middlesex's women as well On the first time I ever saw uh, Sophia Dunkley bat Of course Sophia's had Hmm. An incredible um, Couple of weeks for England uh, Making an unbeaten Half century on debut In both uh, Test cricket and one day international cricket. But, yeah, have this very fond memory of, um, of having a, a long conversation with Murray about his extraordinary life mm. in, in journalism and in writing. And Georgia wrote a, a delightful piece, which you can Google or find on social media, about her granddad uh, when he passed away, probably, yeah, two or three months ago. And there are a number of wonderful obituaries, including one in The Times, which was one of the publications that he wrote for for years. Uh, Patrick Kidd uh, wrote a piece about his old mate. So, yes, a, a nice um, uh, coincidental but uh, lovely way to, to close off uh, our numbers for today.
0: Yep, thank you, Alan Simpson. Uh, the one nine nine, and it was nice that that linked so strongly to Philip Hughes as well in the show where we were also looking at his four oh eight. Uh, so the confirmations we've got for the numbers we got right. James Tiernan, the evil genius, said correct uh, <laughs> in three fifty seven was the cap number of Willie Watson, who played for Sunderland in, uh, f- well played in Sunderland. Uh, he played for Sunderland. He played, played a long he played time for Sunderland yeah, in the football, yeah, that's right. and played for England in the cricket, right? <laughs> yeah, he's one of
1: those dual internationals we were referring to earlier in the show. Who, who like the uh, uh, the great Namibian Dr. Rudy, who uh, who played in mm. uh, you know, well, he was in the World Cup squad uh, for England in 1950 in Brazil and played about I think it was 23 Test matches. Uh, Rob O'Neill, uh, <laughs> we finally
0: imagine that's imagine that's who your ex ends up with, you know, like oh yeah, who, who are they dating now? Oh, and the Namibian doctor called Rudy, who played in two World Cups in the same year and runs a wildlife thing. Yes. It's Rudy.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, oh. And Jeff, um, next up, Robin, Rob O'Neill's 200, which of course wasn't a Julio pledge. It had to be a nerd pledge with him. So, I mean, the 200 was 2 Penny, who was a pioneering Indigenous cricketer. That, of course, being the name that was given to him uh, when he was playing. Rob says, uh, what a great story time after missing it for a couple of weeks. Well done. You hit all the highlights, Jalvert. Is it Jalvert or Jalvert?
0: Javert? Javert. Javert. Yeah. Well
1: done, Javert! you hit all the highlights. Uh, the only thing you missed was that as well as the nine all run, he also took nine for nine in a match on that famous tour. Uh, the riffing on the date of midwinter, as I said, not a clue, but subconsciously, I must have been thinking about the connection between numbers and people's names.
0: Yes, uh, the story of Murum Gunaram, a fascinating one as, as part of that 1868 trip, and Uh, the first Indigenous player for New South Wales, in 1870 on returning to Australia. Dom Griffiths said the 238 was indeed the number of runs that John Edrich made in Boundaries when he made 310. I was delighted when my number came up on <laughs> Nerd Pledge, says Dom. You solved it with consummate ease, as I was sure you would. As a big Crossword fan, I'm looking forward to setting you a cryptic bonanza for my next number. I know you'll love it. Maybe I'll try to find a Norwegian angle. Keep up the excellent work. Dom <laughs> Griffiths. I did write oh, back to Dom my and my said,
1: you're very welcome to do so, but i I will be writing you a message saying, "Now, mate, yeah. tell us what your bloody number is." So we'll see yeah. how yeah. we go. Like, like,
0: we will not solve it. <laughs> no, like, you uh, can send them. Can we send won't them. solve <laughs>
1: it. It's not going to get there. <laughs> we're not going to
0: have a chance in hell. Uh,
1: we're going to finish off with a couple of bits of correspondence. Uh, one here, Jeff from Anchor Sharma.
0: Please make a podcast on Wilfred Rhodes, his career achievements, etc. Well, we could, and I think we've talked about. I think. I think in some ways, Anchor, we already make a podcast about Wilfred Rhodes. <laughs> it's. <laughs> It's this podcast on which we talk about Wilfred Rhodes at length at least every third week. That's um, true. But we could do a dedicated podcast on Wilfred Rhodes, I suppose. Well, he was getting a lot uh, of attention be...
1: again this week, wasn't he, for his 4,300 first-class wickets and the fact that Anderson mm. reached 1,000 and having not even yeah. a quarter of what was achieved by Wilfred. I mean, I don't know, mate. Uh, yeah. Maybe we could do – there's scope there, I reckon. There is scope there yeah. to do a longer, you know, longer form sort of storytelling around Rhodes. I think he deserves it. Let's have a look into mm.
0: that. Let's see what might be possible perhaps a little bit later in the year. If anyone deserves it, it would be him, like, as far as the careers go, as far as the, the scale of careers go. Yeah, and in no terms of it, really well, up and a link to today. Chris, well, I'm, after we finished recording today,
1: I'm about to jump on the Guardians over by Overblog to document mm. a game or to narrate a game in written form where there are going to be like an England second team playing, which – Hmm. Is essentially what happened in 1930 when they sent two teams away. Mm-hmm. England sent a team to New Zealand and a team to the West Indies, and that's where Rhodes got his final opportunity to play what later got defined as Test cricket. But anyway, there's a few leagues back yeah. through. They're always is with Rhodes.
0: And also, your suggestion, which I like, that every statue of Cecil Rhodes that people want removed could be replaced with a statue of Wilfred Rhodes, because then there'd still be a Rhodes statue, keep one half happy. <laughs> But you'd also get rid of the statue of a ruthless, bloodthirsty, imperialist prick Absolutely. Uh, who stole all of the money. From Africa. I, I'm sure that, uh, uh, sure that Wilfred Rhodes went to South Africa at
1: some point. There's that one in Cape Town, isn't there, of, of, mm. uh, of Rhodes, the other roads. Anyway, uh, last bit of correspondence from Bernard Sayer, and he says, I can confidently say it was your best episode yet. This episode on overrates is why I love the final word. Is the discussion that the game has to have, and yet no one to my ears or eyes really tackles. I think you did a sterling job. In this episode Well thank you Bernard I thought I'd keep that in there Even though it's a bit Self-congratulatory I quite Mm -hmm. liked it too Listening back I think we Kind of made a fair bit Of progress over About 45 minutes So if you've not heard it It's about three episodes Back in the queue And also congrats To Bernard Sayer Who's moving over To Victoria To Hall's Gap Specifically So hopefully
0: There'll be a chance To visit him At some point uh, During the Ashes summer I wonder if that's Andrew Hall's Gap Which was the gap Between bat and pad That Andrew Hall left (laughs) When I think he was The fourth wicket To fall in In uh, Lasitha malinga's sequence of four wickets in four deliveries maybe not the fourth but i think he was in that sequence an
1: appropriate place to finish a nerdy sequence oriented something you picked up along the way um as i say that's the end of story time 53 uh which uh, we had a great time bringing to you if you enjoy these shows and enjoy the final word more generally you can be part of it as well patreon.com forward slash the final word submit yourself a nerd pledge and now with the added chance of winning yourself a slab a crate a carton of beer from brick lane thanks to brick lane for being our new principal sponsor it is just wonderful to have them on board as it is the good people at lords tabs will include in the show notes all the information there that you can see what nick tustin's been up to in his fundraising page and likewise that of declan lawler who is doing a great job through the course of this weekend with his multitude of ultra marathons Uh, thank you to the bad producer production team we're on their podcast label they make other wonderful shows about art music and pop culture and, and, and sport and and other parts of life that we all enjoy, productions.com, specifically to Dave Collins, who is our editor, who works very hard for us behind the scenes to make us sound as smooth as we possibly can. Thanks to everybody for listening, for the kind comments on social media, for the correspondence, for the DMs. It's all part of it. This has been the uh, final word story time. I hope you all have a lovely weekend. See
0: you later.